Bibles, please open to Job chapter 41, Job chapter 41, and tonight, unless God raptures us out before we're done, we're going to finish the book of Job. So uh, we're going to look at 42 and 40, uh, 41 and 42 tonight, and the title is Job's Repentance and Restoration. Job's Repentance and Restoration. Now chapter 40 ended last week with a description of the Leviathan's anger and courage. In chapter 40, verses 25 through 34. And in the ancient Near East, the behemoth and Lephiathan were symbols of uncontrollable evil. God spoke about man's inability of capturing this creature by, you know, using normal fishing equipment and, and how man couldn't tame him. And its fearsome anatomy is mentioned here in verses 12 through 25. Uh, it has a fearsome anatomy, a fearsome body, and its inability, again, to be captured by normal hunting equipment, mentioned here in verses 26 to 34. Now, the word Leviathan is a translation of a Hebrew word, so we really don't know what it is. Leviathan is a combination of two words, twisting and a monster. Really, a twisting monster. And God talks more about the Leviathan than any of the other animals. It, in particular, has a vicious nature, and it even attacks men, according to verse 8. It makes chapter 41 a powerful ending to God's questioning of Job. And this beast has been interpreted as the seven-headed sea monster, Lotan, of Ugarithic, Ugarithic mythology, or the whale, or the dolphin, a marine dinosaur that survived the flood, and most likely the crocodile. Uh, one commentator suggests that it was a giant crocodile of the Jordan River. And man's attempt to capture this animal and the detailed description that's given of it here and its anatomy suggests that it was a real creature. The crocodile fits God's description of the Leviathan's back and its teeth. And the behemoth and Leviathan have a lot of similarities. So if one of these animals is real, the other one probably is too. The Lord asked Job, Job, can you capture and control this great creature? If you can, then I'll believe that you have the power and the wisdom to judge the world fairly. So now as he moves on to chapter 41, God begins to speak in verse 41. Notice what it says in verses 1 and 2. Job, can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? The difficulty of catching Leviathan is mentioned by the fact that the usual ways of catching an animal aren't going to work with the Leviathan. Verses 3 through 5. Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will he take him as a servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird or will you leash him for your maidens? It's not easily tame, this creature. Okay, it's not easily tamed that it would ask to be let go or agree to being tamed and become a pet. It won't be controlled by any man. Only God can control him. Verse 6. Will your companions make a banquet of him? Will they apportion him among the merchants? In other words, merchants can't sell him because it's seldom captured. Verses 7 and 8. Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. Never do it again. God asked Job, Job, can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? In other words, can you, 
you know, can you, you know, strike this thing and, and puncture his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? He says, and if you try to lay a hand on it, if you try to catch this thing, you are definitely going to remember the battle that you had and you won't try it again. Verses 9 and 10. Indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? No one is so fierce that he would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? Since people are afraid of even looking at a crocodile, no one would dare wake it up. There's a great danger in provoking God because God says here, you know, if, you, if, if they're afraid of a crocodile, if they're afraid to look at it, this, this, this terrible creature, who's able to stand against me? Verse 11. Who has preceded me that I should pay him? Everything under heaven is mine. So, you know, the, the, God used now this fierce creature to show man's Ill, inability to oppose God. And stand against God or say God owes them something since everything is owned by God. Everything belongs to God. If Job panicked when he saw a crocodile, how did he dare confront the crocodile's maker? And then telling him he had done wrong. If the beast's power was greater than Job's strength, then for sure Job would be powerless before God. And he says to Job, who has given me anything that I need to pay them back? Everything under heaven belongs to me. God owns it all. The idea here is that who, who has ever had God as his debtor? Who has given me? God says, who has given me anything that I need to pay them back? What have you done that God owes you anything? You know, the Bible says God will not be a debtor to any man. God says the whole earth is mine. Everything in it is mine. But Lord, Job says, look what I've given you. You know, in a sense. And we say many times, Lord, look what we've given you. Look what we've done for you. You know, I pay my tithes every Sunday morning. You know, my hard-earned check. You know, I, I tithe part of it. And God would say, whose paycheck? Who's enabled you to make that paycheck? Who's given you the job? Who's given you the youth and the strength to do the work? God says, who am I indebted to? Who am I, who am I a debtor to? It's all mine. I'm giving whatever you have to you. It's mine to give to you. Everything under heaven and earth is mine. Verses 12 through 17. I will not conceal his limbs, his mighty power, or his great graceful portions. Who can remove his outer coat? Who can approach him with a double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? In other words, who can open his jaws with his terrible teeth all around? His rows of scales are his pride, shut up tightly as with a seal. One is so near another that no air can come between them. Um, he goes on to say, they are joined together. They are joined to one another. They stick together and cannot be parted. God then reminds Job here about the crocodile's anatomy in verses 12 to 25. It's hard to catch because of its mighty power. And the protective armor of its outer coat has a tough hide. And it says the doors of his face, who can open them? Speaking of his jaws, who can pry open the jaws of a crocodile? And then it talks about the terrible teeth that terrify. And it talks, he talks about his back with rows of scales that weapons can't even penetrate. Those scales can't even be parted. Verses 18 through 21. 
His sneezing, again, speaking of the crocodile, his, uh, this, 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 this beast, this creature. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lights, sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke goes out of his nostrils as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes out of his mouth. Here God is speaking to Job about the movements of a crocodile's nose, eyes, and mouth. They also put fear into people. A crocodile can stay totally submerged underwater for about five minutes. And what he describes here is when that crocodile comes up, this creature, again, pretty much believed to be a crocodile. When this creature comes up for air and sneezes the water out of its nostrils, it says here that the spray looks like flashes of light when the sun hits them. And when this animal uh, rises up from the water, its eyes, its small eyes with slits. For pupils, like a cat's eyes, are seen first, like the early rays of, of, of dawn in the morning. And interestingly, in Egyptian hieroglyphics, the crocodile's eye represents the dawn. Now, does the burning lights from its mouth and the smoke and the flames from its nostrils described in verses 19 through 21 mean this is a mythical dragon? No, it doesn't. These things may be explained as the way God spoke about the crocodile's breath and water. When it was discharged from its mouth, it, it, you know, look in the, it looks in the sunlight like a stream of, of fire. Now, this, is, this dramatic and probably exaggerated language here emphasizes this beast's frightful nature. And this language is also the basis for the concept of a dragon in mythology. And it's possible that Leviathan was a dragon. Every ancient culture, society, or people, or ethnic group have stories about dragons. The descriptions of the dragons are sort of the fire-breathing monsters. Again, Leviathan in the Hebrew literally means a twisting monster. Where do the ideas come from for dragons? Well, the fact that they are universally spoken of by the different peoples of the world, uh, you know, make that, you know, something that, that could be right on. The Chinese used the dragons in their parades. In Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, Isaiah says, speaks about a Leviathan, and he relates it to the dragon. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 27, 1. In that day, the Lord with his severe, sword, his, his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, notice that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. Look at verses 22 through 25 now. Strength dwells in his neck, and sorrow dances before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together. They are firm on him and cannot be moved. His heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. Because of his crashings, they are beside themselves. It has a strong neck, a tight neck, according to verse 15. Tight and firm flesh. It has an unusually hard chest. This, this creature causes fear in people. So it's no wonder that when he rises up out of the water, even the mighty tremble and they run from this creature. Now, how inconsistent then for Job, terrified by God's superiority, to think that he could confront God. Verses 26 through 34. Though the sword re reaches him, it cannot avail, nor does spear, dart, or javelin. 
He regards iron as a straw. Notice to, the, to this creature, uh, uh, iron is like straw and bronze is like rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones become like stubble to him. Darts are regarded as straw. It says he laughs at the threat of javelins. His undersides or his belly are, the sharp, are like sharp pet shirt, uh, pot shirts. He spreads pointed marks in the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep, uh, one would think that the deep had white hair. On earth there is nothing like him which is made without fear. He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. In those days, strong hunters. Could uh, seldom confronted these fierce creatures with normal weapons, you know, with the sword or with the spear or the dart or the javelin, because they had no effect on this animal's tough hide. They couldn't penetrate it. Instruments of iron or bronze, they were easily broken by this beast. Things like arrows or stones bounced off of its hide had no effect. No, nor could a crocodile be killed with a club or a spear. And the height of this animal's undersize is so jagged that when he walks on the mud, he leaves marks that look like something with, this, with sharp points has pulled up, you know, the mud. And swimming in a river, it says here that a crocodile stirs up the water so that it looks like it's boiling. Saying that his agitating the water is like a pot of ointment. This means that it looks like foam that would be caused by an apothecary or, an, or a pharmacist when he boils ointment. Another terrifying characteristic of the Leviathan is its speed. It moves through the water so fast that it leaves a shiny wake, it says here. White caps of waves that look like white hair. There's no creature like it, God is saying here. And he's afraid of nothing. And yet everyone is afraid of him. Even a prideful man hides in fear before a crocodile. So this unconquerable animal is king over proud beasts and proud men. Where Job couldn't humble the arrogant just by looking down on them, the Leviathan, a mere animal, could do that. God's closing words here in verse 41, that the crocodile looks down on the haughty and is supreme over the proud, would remind Job that his pride before God the crocodile's creator was both risky and dangerous. So in this second lecture, from chapter 40, verse 6, to the end of chapter 41 here, God was challenging Job to control these monsters, the behemoth and Leviathan, if he wanted to maintain order in God's universe. Obviously, Job couldn't do it. Job had been concerned that God had not dealt with evil. So God was showing Job that he was not qualified to take over God's job of controlling and conquering evil because Job couldn't even conquer the animals uh, that, that the animal that these uh, th that they represented of evil. In fact, God had made these animals which suggest that evil forces are not beyond God's control. Now, God does not cause evil, but he will allow it for his will and his purposes. God permits evil. And chaos to rule for, for a time, just that he had given Satan permission to test Job. But men cannot subdue a hippopotamus or a crocodile, his fellow creatures without help. 
We saw that in chapter 40, verse 15. Nor can men conquer evil in the world which these animals symbolize. Only God can do that. So Job's defiant questioning about God's ways in the moral universe, you know, as if God was incompetent or even evil, was totally ridiculous and not called for. So now beginning in chapter 42. If man would have finished this book, this story of Job, If man probably would have finished the story with God explaining to Job why he was afflicted. That it was something between God and Satan. It would be a terrible ending. But that's how man probably would have written it. He would have explained that this deal between God and Job was why Job was afflicted. Why Job was experiencing all of this problem. They would have said, well, this, this, this whole situation was something between God and Satan. But thank God that's now how this book ends. The first thing we see is how Job's character improved because of everything that he had gone through. And keep this in mind. That's the whole purpose of the trials and the tribulations and the sufferings and the pain that we experience as Christians in this life. It's to improve our character when it's all said and done. One of the main results of Job's great trial was that, was that he recognized some valuable truths through it all. And this shows that the trial result, resulted in proving Job's character. And many times the things that God does will accomplish more than one purpose. That's how it was with Job's afflictions. The troubles that Job experienced proved to Satan what God had said about Job, that Job would not forsake God. But you know what? The troubles also had another purpose, and that was to help Job improve his character. The first part of this chapter focuses on his character improvement. Job was a godly man in God's eyes, but through his afflictions, he would shine even more before God. So with chapter 42 now, let's begin with verses 1 and 2. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Job now recognizes God's deity. God's long questioning, those 77 questions, those long questions, that long time of questioning of Job had a very strong and positive effect on Job about God's power. Job is now looking, he's recognizing, God, you can do everything. All before this, when he was going through his suffering, and many times when we experience pain and trial, we think God can't do it. God can't fix this. And that's where Job's mind was. Job can't fix this, or he's not going to fix this. But he's saying now, God, you can do everything. How did he learn that? Through the difficulty that he went through. God not only made the earth and the universe, but he controls it as well. And we need to recognize this this too. That when trials come up, we may too often see God as being too weak to do anything about it. And then we get bummed out. Because we're living and walking by sight and not by faith. We're allowing the things that we see and that we feel... To, to, to rule our, our, our thoughts and our behavior. 
When we see that there's no way out of our bad circumstances, and that's what we see, then we get into a negative frame of mind. And we start to say, nothing can fix what I'm going through. Nothing can fix my problem. Remember what Job says here, God can do everything. And Job learned God is powerful and that nothing can stop him. Job had been in God's classroom. And that's what you always have to remember when you're in that dark place. You're in God's classroom. And you're there to be a student. But don't let Satan make you a victim. But you know why a lot of people don't sign up for God's classroom? <laughs> it involves pain. It involves things that, that, that we don't like to deal with. In God's classroom, Job learned about God's power. Look at verse 3. You asked, who is this who hides counsel with knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me. Notice Job's language now. Job quoted God's question. Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? To suggest God was right. Job had spoken without knowledge. Eli even said so. Elihu even said so. Job talked about things beyond his comprehension. He talked about things too wonderful or awesome in creation for him to know. And now, Job has put aside his complaints about God's inability to rule the world fairly. And to think that Job could boldly refute, that he could boldly argue any of God's trumped up charges, he says, forget it, I've laid them all aside, I, I have no complaints, God. I've learned that you can do everything. I learned that I, that I, that I, I had no knowledge of, of the things that I needed to have knowledge of. Notice verses 4 and 5 now. Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. Notice, but now my eyes see you. Look at that. Let's go back. I left out verse 4. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Job quoted the Lord again here, this time mentioning God's challenge at the beginning of each of his two speeches. Uh, first in chapter 38, verse 3, and then in four, uh, verse 40, verse 7. He says, I will question you and you shall answer me. And in Job saying this, he was admitting that he couldn't answer any of the Lord's questions. And Job's admitting here, Lord, I flunked your science class, man. I, I flunked my science test. He says here, Job says, I only heard of the things that you, I only heard of your doings, God. He wasn't an eyewitness of God's creation. And God called Job's attention. Job, where were you when I created the world? God called, called uh, Job's attention to this at the beginning of his speech in chapter 30. Where were you? Job, when I created the world. Nor could Job even view firsthand many of the aspects of natural creation. His perspective of everything that God did was so limited and secondhand, just like ours. But now that Job was addressed directly by God, this experience exceeded Job's previous knowledge. Like, you know, some, like seeing compared with hearing. He said, before I heard about you, Lord, but now I've seen you. I've seen what you can do, God. 
And this new and exciting view of God by Job, probably it was spiritual insight, not really a physical vision, but a spiritual insight. I know that I know now. It deepened his perspective and it deepened his appreciation of God. And what Job knew now about God, hey, it wasn't the same as what he knew before. It wasn't the same, the former ideas that he had, which were really ignorant. This personal meeting, this personal confrontation with God silenced, it quieted his arguing, and it deepened his reverence for God. Verse 6. Listen to what he says now. Therefore I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Finally, having gained this insight into, the, into God's ways, And into God's character, into God's creative power and his creative genius and his sovereign control of of, of everything and his providential care and his love, Job confessed his own unworthiness and he repented. He says, I abhor myself. This means that he rejected the accusations that he made against God earlier, spoken in pride. Oh, I hate myself for that God. And God had already rebuked Job for accusing, blaming, and doubting him in chapter 40, verse 2. Then after repenting, it says that he repented in dust and in ashes. This was a way of expressing his criticism. Back then, when, 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 when men were grieved about something that they did, they would throw dust up in the air, and it would come down, and it would land on their head. And they would sit in these ashes and with ashes on their body. This was, these were signs of a humbled condition. Having grieved over his losses, Job now grieved over his sin. Obviously, Job didn't repent of his sins, which his three friends had accused him of since the very beginning. Job stuck to his position stubbornly that he was suffering, but it wasn't because of some sin or sins in his life. But like Elihu had pointed out, bitterness and pride had followed, you know, after he lost his wealth and his family and and his health. And at first, Job's response was okay. But, but, But now Job saw after God challenged him that no one can rightly accuse God of anything. Realizing that God, again, is not obligated to man. He's not obligated to man. And Job's questions disappeared and his resentment left him. And he was satisfied now. Why? Because God had communicated with him about his own person, not about Job's problems. It's not about your problems, Job. It's about who I am. And that's what you need to understand. Now Job was willing to trust God, whose ways are perfect even when he couldn't understand them. And no doubt, no doubt, God forgave Job of his earlier sin of pride. And now as God comes to the end of of this discussion with Job, he now turns to Job's three friends before he restored Job's prosperity and family. Look at verse 7. And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Timonite, my wrath is roused against you and your two friends for you notice for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Wow. 
God spoke to Eliphaz and said he was angry with him and the other two friends. Why? Because they had not spoken right of God like my servant Job did. Job's three friends assumed a position of defending God, but now they're on the defensive themselves. And as Job predicted, things did not turn out well for them. Job's friends thought they knew God's ways, but they surely didn't expect this. The words here that God spoke, my servant Job, God says it four times in verses 7 and 8. And it points to his restored. It points to Job's restored position as God's trusting and obedient servant. And by insisting that that suffering is always punishment. That's what Job's friends were telling. Hey, the only reason you, you, you must have done something because that's the only reason people get punished. By saying that, the three friends were limiting God's sovereign ability to use suffering for some other reason. And as a result, Job's three friends were cruel and they were wrongly accusing innocent Job. How then did Job speak what is right? Hadn't he repeatedly pridefully challenged God, accusing him of being unfair and and uncalled for silence because God wouldn't speak to him? For 37 chapters, God didn't speak to him. But now, Job had repented of his proud and and unknowledgeable accusations. And as a result, he was accepted by God. Not only that, he never cursed God like Satan said he would, nor did he curse God and die, obviously, as his wife urged him to do. He came close. (laughs) And though Job continued to contend with God, to argue and debate with God, he never renounced God. Also, his view of God's power and wisdom, it exceeded his three friends. Look at verses 8 and 9 now. Now, therefore, notice he's talking to the three friends. God says, now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams. Notice, go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. Notice, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept him lest I deal with you according to your, to your uh, folly. Because you have not spoken what is right as my servant Job has. Verse 9. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Naamathite, went and did as the Lord commanded them, for the Lord had accepted Job. What a surprise, I'm sure, and an embarrassment of Job's three friends. God told them, look, you offer a burnt offering of seven bulls and seven rams. That was a large offering. That was a large sacrifice. And they were to have Job pray for them as their mediator. In those first 37 chapters, when it was Job, you know, debating his friends, they never once prayed for Job. All you see is one accusation after another. And the best thing we can do is pray for people. Because we really don't know what God is doing in their life. And I've said before many times, we, we become like little gods. Even, even um, um, wanting to do the right thing, not intentionally. 
oh, you know what, that, you, you shouldn't have to go through that, or, or God doesn't want, when you start to say God doesn't want, how do you know? How do you know? The best thing is to pray that the will of God is done for those folks, for whoever it might be, for whatever might be going on. They never prayed for Job one time, but now Job, who they condemned and harassed for 37 chapters, had now had rejected their own counsel that they gave to Job, and that was to pray for them. I mean, it's amazing how things turn out when you're right with God. They had defended God's justice by striking Job down. But now they saw that God is concerned with more, with more than just justice. He's also known for love and grace. They recommended Job repent, but now that's what they had to do. And they, they were also silenced and corrected by God's direct communication to them. And Elihu was excluded from having to, Elihu now, you know, the last one that spoke before, you know, the three friends, after the three friends, Elihu was excluded here from having to repent, even though he didn't uh, have all of the truth about Job's situation, but he was nearer to the truth than the other three friends were. Job had been wanting, remember, a mediator between him and God. He wanted somebody that would go there and stand between him and God so that he could present his case to God. He had wanted a mediator between him and God since his three friends weren't praying for him. But, J- but Job becomes a mediator for them even though they didn't ask for one. Look at verse 10. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job, notice this, twice as much as he had before. So now a blessing resulted from Job's trials. Trials, uh, blessings come after trials. But remember, God didn't owe this to him. God didn't owe this to him. God doesn't owe, any, owe anyone anything. And yet Job received a great blessing for his suffering in order to prove God right in his debate with Satan. Never forget why Job suffered. Don't ever forget what took place in heaven between Satan and God that resulted in Job's sufferings. The suffering showed that Job had some weaknesses, and we all do. Job wasn't perfect, and neither are we. And God helped to smooth out those rough edges in Job's life. And trials are like sandpaper. And God may use pain, he may use suffering, he may be somebody close to you as that sandpaper to smooth off those rough edges in your life. But the suffering was mainly to prove God was right in his debate with Satan. God was truly cleared by God's reaction to his troubles. And now God is going to reward Job accordingly for his part in God's vindication. And praying for his friends is what prompted the Lord to reward Job. And keep in mind, even though they were more like thorns in Job's flesh, he still prayed for them. Even when he was still in a lot of suffering. Some of the best medicine for a person who's suffering is to help others in their suffering. A lot of times when we're suffering, where does the focus all become or go to? Me. 
It's all about me. Oh, you don't know what I'm going through. Oh, you don't know the things that I'm dealing with. Oh, it, me, me, my, my. It's, it's all about me. We have a tendency to get caught up in ourselves. And does that help relieve the suffering? No. But becoming more concerned about the needs of others more than your own will definitely relieve your suffering. And that is why it's said of Job that when he prayed for his friends, the Lord blessed them. When Job prayed for his friends, the Lord blessed them. He restored his losses. Not only that, this is significant. The Lord gave him twice as much as he had before. When you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, you'll see all the, all the, the riches they had, all the amount of cattle and oxen, and, and, and you'll see how much he had. So it's easy to do the math. What he had in chapter uh, 1, verse 3 is doubled here in chapter 42. Normally we think of money when it comes to giving. But in Job's case, he had to give himself over to a lot of suffering for, for the cause of God. And when you give to God, hey man, you get the best and you get the highest returns anywhere. You can't outgive God. And Job's reward was great. And Job's reward is a promise to all of us that God will generously reward all who serve him faithfully. And that's the key, faithfully. Look at verse 11. Then all his brothers, all his sisters, and all those who had been his acquaintances before, they came to him and ate food with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversity that the Lord had brought upon him. Each one gave him a piece of silver and each a ring of gold. Now, this is interesting. Where were they when he was hurting? That's the way it usually is. After the trial's over and Job's got, you know, he's back to health and he's feeling good, here they come. Where were they when Job really needed their comfort and their help in his time of suffering? They were nowhere to be found. So when you think you're popular, take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> you know, he was the, you know, a big man in his time and everybody loved him and all that. Where were they when he was hurting? And the crowd was made up of friends and uh, close acquaintances and relatives. They knew Job before. They were the people closest to him in his life. And you know what? Sometimes it's our closest friends and relatives that are the first ones to abandon us when we need them. And you know what? Sometimes, you know, we have friends that go through difficult times and and it, we, don't know, we don't know what to say and we don't know how to approach them, so we avoid them. You know, what we need to do is just tell them we love them and we're praying for them at least to let them know so that they don't feel so alone or they feel abandoned. Where are my friends? But God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It says here, they ate with him. And this was customary for friends to do. You ate with your friends. It was a sign of peace. It was a sign of, of, of fellowship. It was a sign that they were in good standing. Remember Jesus called the disciples to come dine with him in John chapter 21 after they had abandoned him and Peter denied. He said, come join me. Come and eat. It was a sign. Jesus said, hey, we're okay. We're, we're good, guys. We're still, we're still friends. It was a sign of friendship. 
Job was very loving to allow them into his house to eat with him. Because I think a lot of relatives says, hey, get out of here, man. Where were you when I needed you? They came. They comforted him. Now, he could have used some of their comforting while he was going through the troubles. People need to be comforted during bad times. And it's only fair-weathered friends who comfort you in good times. Gifts of those who survived, gifts for those who survived a tough time was another custom in those days. They brought gifts. The gifts wouldn't, uh, would have meant more, though, if they'd have been given to Job when he really needed them. Now let's look at verse 12. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. God saved the best for last. Like the wine in the wedding in Cana, remember? The best wine came last. The latter part of Job's life compared to the first part was a lot better. And to make the latter end of Job better than the beginning was really to bless Job. Was really to bless Job. Because Job, when you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, he was a very well-off person to begin with. But making his latter end better meant that Job was blessed extremely well here. And the principle of, of, of doubling his blessing shows how much better was the end than the beginning. And spiritually speaking, it's always best to finish better than how we started. And a lot of times older Christians seem to want the past to be better or outshine the present as they slack off of the spiritual activities in the latter years. And like I said, when you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, and and here it shows in, in, in chapter 1, verse 3, what he had, and you can see this blessing now of his latter days was double what he had originally. So if Job was considered great back in chapter 1, he must have risen to a, a, a lot greater standard or status, I should say, of greatness after his trial. A lot of people probably envy Job here. But none would want to go through what he went through before he was so greatly blessed. And a lot of times you look at people, oh man, we envy them and we, you know, we wish we had this and that. Though we don't know maybe what they've had to go through to get that. Trial often comes before great blessing when it comes to serving the Lord. Trials help to keep us humble. Trials help to keep us usable for God and fits us for better blessings. It's not easy to have great blessings without going through some kind of spiritual sufferings. Verse 13. Notice, he also had seven sons and three daughters. One of the wonderful rewards for Job had to do with his family. He had more children than the ones that were killed. Here's the interesting thing, though. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says he had seven sons and three daughters. Guess what he got here? Seven sons and three daughters. Well, he doubled all the animals. Why didn't he double the children? Because he didn't lose them. They were going to be united in heaven one day. So in actuality, he still has the seven sons and the three daughters. And now he's got seven more sons and three more daughters. So it is doubled. 
How awesome is that? You see, unlike animals who, sorry to say, don't exist after they die, our souls will be reunited when we get to heaven with those that that went before us. He lost 7,000 sheep, but he got back 14,000. And like I said, doubled all of the animals. And the reason that, that Job received the same number of children is because they didn't die and stop existing there in heaven. This text here is a great support for life after death. Like I said, we're not like animals. When we, when we die, we don't stop existing. Our soul just changes places. Only the body dies. Job would feel that he was highly favored by having three beautiful daughters, it says in 15. There was none like them. They were beautiful daughters. And, and as usual, Job gave an inheritance to his children. But he did something unusual. He gave part of his inheritance to his daughters. And the reason that's unusual is because usually only sons would receive inheritance in these days. Job would have, uh, wouldn't have any trouble having plenty for all of his children. Being as rich as he was from the war that he gave him, he'd have plenty of wealth to share among all of his children so that each one would have a sizable wealth. Verse 16. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. One of the greatest blessings of the reward from God was the additional years that God gave Job. And since God gave Job twice as much as before the trial, this would mean that God gave him twice the years that he had experienced before the trial as well. Which means Job must have been 70 years old when his trial came. That means that that Job died at 210 years old. 70 when he he got affliction and then he lived 140 years. He got to see his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and possibly his great-great-grandchildren depending on how long a generation was in those days. Now, how long he suffered, we don't know for sure. But chapter 7, verse 13 says, it mentions months of futility. Chapter 29, verse 2 also mentions months. So Job's trial was was several months, maybe even a year, according to Jewish tradition, but probably not longer than that. Then closing, closing in verse 17. So Job died old and full of days. Job's great blessing wasn't getting... You know, Job's blessing wasn't getting his health back or his wealth back or his family and friends getting them back. His great blessing was knowing God better and understanding how God worked in a deeper way. James wrote in James 5.11, You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the purpose of the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Hebrews 12, 11 reminds us now, no chastening seems to be joyous for the present, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Remember the afterward. We always focus on the present. Remember the afterward. That's that's where we're going. That's what we're looking for after all of this. 
after this life, after these trials, after all that we go through, that's what we're looking for. That's when it says of Jesus, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. It doesn't, when you, if he's, the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It makes it sound like he was looking forward and, and going to enjoy the cross. No, it was the joy that set before him that he endured. The, he knew what was going to happen after the cross. He knew that he was going to resurrect and he was going to live again and he was going to be in his glorified body. It was the afterward that Jesus was thinking of and looking at. And that's what we need to be looking at, the afterward, the afterlife. G. Campbell Morgan said this. In the whole story of Job, we see the patience of God and endurance of man. When these act in fellowship, the issue is certain. It is that, it is that of the coming forth from the fire as gold, that of receiving the crown of life. Father, we thank you so much for this awesome chapter, Lord. We thank you for all that you do, God. And help us to remember that no matter what God allows to come into our lives, he always has his afterword. He writes the last chapter, and that makes, makes it worth it all. So we need to just hang in there. We need to be patient and let patience do its work, and then we will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Lord, what a wonderful book. What a wonderful ending, God. And again, um, in the first 37 chapters was just sorrow and suffering and grieving. But when we come to the end of the book, we see the blessing, the afterward. And God, help us to focus on the afterward and not the present when it comes to the, the, the end of our lives, Lord. We know how it's all going to end, God. But we may have to go through the rough times, some rough times on the way to get there, Lord. So, Father, we thank you, we love you, we give you honor and glory, and, Father, we look forward to where you're going to take us next in your wonderful word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.